0: Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. Hey, everyone, and welcome to All Together, the Family Science Insights podcast, produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host Dina Sargent, let's get started. Hey guys and welcome back to another episode. Now when it comes to sibling relationships, sibling rivalry, jealousy, empathy can sometimes be the result. When dealing with that relationship, with the addition of a disability, sometimes it can impact that very relationship. To help us in talking about this very introduction is Caroline Shivers. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today, Caroline.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: Now, as our guest today, could you tell us your role in guiding families and its importance in strengthening sibling relationships?
1: Absolutely. So my name is Dr. Carolyn Shivers. I'm an associate professor of psychology at Niagara University, which is in western New York in the United States. So my primary role is essentially as a teacher of undergrads in preparing future parents, and some of them may currently be parents. In addition to my roles in teaching, I'm also a researcher and I provide workshops and just sort of casual consulting for families. Consulting makes it sound really obnoxious, but I give advice that to any families that, that ask for it. Mm-hmm.
0: And during your work and what you do, what has been some of the most common frustrations parents and possibly children face when trying to pursue that interaction and trying to sort of understand the sibling relationship when it comes to a disability? Yeah. You know, a lot of times it's sort of the good old fashioned parents just
1: don't understand. Parents see a relationship from their perspective, from their adult perspective, from their parent perspective. And the non-disabled sibling is seeing it from their perspective, from their child or adolescent perspective, from their sibling perspective. And it can be a lot of just you don't understand what she's like you don't understand what she does to me um you don't understand what my friends think anything like that and there's there's the idea that most children with a developmental disability particularly with an intellectual disability are not born into a family where anybody else has an intellectual disability. There can be multiple siblings and it is almost certainly an identity that is not shared with the entire family. And there are some cases of that and that tends to be more environmentally linked, uh, cases like lead poisoning and, and things like that. So if a child has an intellectual disability in particular, then that's not something that the rest of the family really understands, and it's usually Mm -hmm. not something that the rest of the family has lived with. So Mm -hmm. you're trying to manage a relationship where one person in that relationship truly does have a unique perspective. Everybody has their own perspective, but for the sibling with an intellectual disability, they can think, you know, literally nobody understands them. Nobody knows what it is like to be a sibling with an intellectual disability.
0: Mm -hmm. No, that does seem like such a, a conflict of so many different situations when it comes to either one of the family members feeling like they feel left out or missed out on certain activities when it comes to family situations or gatherings that they can't really bring themselves to be a part of. So that definitely does seem like such a great introduction into our topic today. But before we even dive into it even further, I would love to get to know some of your recommendations as well as some of your interests by playing our show's favorite game, A Favorite Little Icebreaker. Now, to start off with, what is the most recent book that you've read?
1: I was actually really excited for this question because I just finished a book called The House on the Cerulean Sea. Mm -hmm. And I can't remember the name of the author off the top of my head, but it is about a society where magical children exist, except they're isolated and they're put into orphanages because people are afraid of them. So there's a non-magical man whose job is to go and quote unquote inspect these orphanages to make sure that the government's not wasting its money or anything. And it's just fascinating and beautiful and heartfelt and creative. And I really enjoyed it.
0: No, that sound that actually does sound really interesting. I say that sounds interesting quite a lot as a catchphrase on my show, but um, that actually really does sound like a book that I would want to read. So I'm going to make a note of that because it sounds very interesting to me. We well, need to play a shot
1: to, Oh, so, so right.
0: Well, <laughs> <No>, that's okay. <laughs> it it speaks
1: to kind of the themes that we're going to talk about, like children who are different. In ways that sort of just society thinks they're different, and then society thinks they're somehow worse or more dangerous or weirder. And it just, it was so beautiful and relevant, and I really liked it.
0: Oh, it's a perfect read then at the perfect time. Now, how about a movie that you would recommend to our viewers today?
1: I have to go old school with this. My favorite movie of all time is The Princess Bride. It is, you know, comedy mm-hmm. and and drama. It's it is my go-to movie. Just loved it.
0: Yeah. No, I would rec- I think we watch that every season change, every holiday that we feel like we need to have a little bit of a family family moment. That's exactly what we watch all the time. So I I can definitely see all the adventure and the romance and a love story that's sort of within it is very Very fitting as what's been whistling out in today's society and what we need a little bit more of. So, yes,
1: yes. It's a great sort of escapist antidote.
0: (laughs) Yes, exactly. Now, do you have a podcast that has really stood out to you within the last couple of weeks or so? So...
1: Do you want like a podcast episode or just a whole podcast? It
0: could be a podcast show. It could be an episode that you really, it could be anything. So you take that however you want.
1: Yeah. So my current favorite podcast is called Maintenance Phase. And it is about actually looking at the data behind the wellness industry. So looking at different diets and different products and the way We, mostly we in the United States, collect data about nutrition and health. And a basic summary of the show is that our data are terrible. And we end up jumping to these conclusions that are really ostracizing for people at best and really dangerous for people at worst. But what I love about it is they talk about actual data so much they um, they they really get into things like sample size and power and how things are measured, and they they refer to each other, the two hosts, as methodology queens. And one of my grad students bought me a sweatshirt from their their merch shop that said methodology queen, and it I love it. It made me very happy.
0: It's always good when someone really recognizes how much you love a show or a film or anything like that, because it definitely shows when someone buys you a merch merchandise regarding that. (laughs) Yes. Now, going on to the next question, do you have a person that you find yourself looking up to either in your personal life or your professional life?
1: I have so many people that I look up to. The, The obvious answer is my mom and we'll talk more about her later she is one of five siblings and her youngest her youngest brother has down syndrome so i grew up watching siblings of people with developmental disabilities and she's just she never stops trying you know she always wants to learn and do better and that includes with herself you know she she's actually retiring in a week, literally a week from today is her retirement day. And then she and my stepdad are going to Italy for two weeks to, you know, travel and celebrate their retirement. And I I just love that for her. I'm like, yes, good job, mom. I want to be you when I grow up.
0: No, that sounds like the best way to celebrate a retirement is doing a whole Europe trip as the yes. sort of beginning of everything else. Completely agree. Now, during your academic pursuit. Has there been one course that has really stuck out to you that you still sort of reference today?
1: I reference, interestingly, a lot of examples from the personality psychology class that I took as an undergrad. I had so many great psych classes in undergrad and in grad school. So in the United States, grad school is master's, PhD, can also be law school, med school, just anything beyond the undergraduate. Mm-hmm. And the the professor was so sweet and she sort of had this really soft little voice, but she just had really interesting examples in how she got us to think about things. And I I try to use her examples and then introducing them is always really funny. So my professor, when I was an undergrad, was actually talking about her husband who was from France. And it's like, no, I swear it's a really good example. Maybe a few degrees too far removed now.
0: No, that sounds really cool. I always love when I always love asking that question because I hear amazing stories when it comes to every guest in one course that they still can't seem to get out of their head and still trying to be similar to that lecture or try to enthuse people the way that they got enthused as well. So it's always great asking that question. I never get tired of asking it.
1: I think all the, I don't want to say all the best professors, but professors who really enjoy our jobs, we learned from so many amazing professors that we had throughout mm-hmm. our academic careers.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I um, i still really reference my seventh grade teacher back in primary school a lot of the time when it comes to the way that she uh, taught me taught me division she used an orange and sort of just drew lines around how to divide each of the orange each of the parts of the orange to sort of remember how to do division so I'll never forget about how she literally brought an orange and used that to teach us
1: (laughs) that's awesome that's a great teacher bringing props thinking outside the box I love
0: that Yeah, no, exactly. I know, I love that as well. So thank you so much for sharing some of your interests and some of your recommendations. Um, To ask the first question, I know that everyone has a very different definition as to what family is and how they would sort of use family and the ways that they would describe a family. So what would your definition to a family be?
1: So my definition of family is a collection of people who are mutually there for each other in the best way they can be, and they choose to do that. Mm -hmm. So that may or may not be biological, that may or may not be even legal, it's a collection of people that, again, not just those individual dyadic relationships, but as a group, are really there to try to support each other and make things better for each other. Mm -hmm.
0: And what do you think the position of a family holds in today's society?
1: I think families are, they've they've always been important in society. And Mm -hmm. I think with the potential, slow yet maybe really meaningful expansion of the definition of family, That these different types of families are so important because it helps us acknowledge that you can have a family even if your biological family does not provide that kind of support and wanting Mm -hmm. you to be the best you can be. I grew up in not only a very large sort of biological and legal family, but a family that has, in some cases, especially on my mom's side, a lot of extended family that they refer to as aunt and uncle and cousins. You know, my mom has these family friends. It's my grandparents and their two sets of best friends, their couples, and they all Mm -hmm. call each other, you know, aunt and uncle. And I think I was 12 years old before I knew I was not biologically related to these people because, you know, it's... Aunt Nance and Uncle Terry and Uncle Joe and Aunt Marge and all of mom's cousins. And yeah, that's what it is. So now, with my friends, as my friends are having kids, I'm Aunt Carolyn or Auntie Carolyn. And, you know, kids that I have, they, my friends will be Auntie Katie and Auntie Bertrana and Uncle Jeff. So I think these ideas of family can be what we're born into, it can Mm -hmm. be what we are legally added into through whatever venue or way that may be. And it can also be who we choose to be really close to. So one more quick example, one of my friends who has kids that I'm Auntie Carolyn, Aunt Carolyn, he has five kids, he and his wife, and they were all born within five years. And the last two were twins. So when the okay. twins were born, it happened to be during summer. And so I wasn't working as a professor. And and I said, yeah, I can come help. So I drove over and I stayed for several nights at a time, like helping do middle of the night feedings and taking the older kids out and just helping them and being a part of their family however I could. Mm-hmm.
0: That's such a great example. and I love the way that the way that you describe the position, the strength that that family sort of creates. and I grew up very similarly in a way that it wasn't just out of because I grew up in an Asian household and we had we use aunt and uncle with basically everyone that you meet next door neighbor could be an aunt and uncle and not really knowing how we're related to them in any way but still that's just out of respect that we say that but it became such a such a way of showing how much we care about them and how much they are relevant in our family and in our lives so it became not just out of respect not just out of the asian culture that we usually have when it comes to an uncle but the way that we sort of say you we respect you greatly enough for you to be called that and for you to have that status of being this close in our family or this. um, We didn't have, it was basically um, all of my family, distant family, all the relatives are all in different countries, different parts of the world. So growing up just the four of us, there was that huge understanding that we had to make our own family. We had to find a way to build our own little community and pretty much people down the road were aunt and uncle, people everywhere, people in our um, in our community, people in the community hall were all aunt and uncle to us. And that was such a great way of filling that void of not having a any distant relatives close by or not being in great communication with them as much as we would have liked. So, yeah, I can definitely see the use of aunt and uncle being so important in... Today's society and still having that great amount of respect on both parts of okay, this is how much I really care for you. And yeah, I'm definitely gonna force all my kids to use an uncle throughout their entire childhood. Um, it gets a little weird. It gets a little weird now when I'm 25 and I'm still calling the next door neighbor aunt or uncle, or um still calling some of my mom's friends aunt and uncle. So it's it gets a little bit weird when I'm pretty much not that old, that much older than them. But when I'm younger, that was definitely something that was a non-negotiable. So I'm definitely going to force yeah. my kids to do the same.
1: Yeah. Well, and especially for younger kids, it's so important because it helps distinguish this is a grown-up we can trust. You know, if you say miss or mister, that can be anybody. <laughs> That's any grown-up. <laughs> Aunt or uncle are people that we can trust. They're people in our family. Yeah,
0: no, that's true. I, that's actually a really good point. I never really thought about it in that sort of sense when it comes to how important it is to show that we they're okay. You can go to them and they'll help you out. So no, that's a great way of sort of looking at it. Now, I did mention something earlier about empathy and empathy in sibling relationships. So could you explain what that role is? within families with disabled members? Yes,
1: absolutely. So the first thing to note is that empathy from a scientific perspective has a few different versions, I guess, or different ways that you can be empathetic. So Mm -hmm. there's something called perspective taking, which is sort of the cognitive aspect of empathy. So I can understand what you are going through and why you might be perceiving things this way. Mm-hmm. Then there is the sharing of emotions. You cry, I cry. You feel sad, I feel sad. And then there can be more, they call them more like fantasy empathy, and that's just really getting into and getting worked up over fictional characters and and really feeling like they're your friends and empathizing with them. So... When we think about empathy in families of children with disabilities, and most of my work has been families of children with intellectual disabilities, as well as some developmental disabilities, the empathy can be really important in sort of any version. And the perspective taking can be maybe a little more important, but also a little more encourageable. Like, it's really hard to get people to be sad with other people. Mm -hmm. Like, look, that person is sad. You need to be sad. It just it's not as teachable. But the perspective taking, Mm -hmm. we can listen, we can talk, we can describe, and we can practice that. So when it comes to siblings of individuals with disabilities, or particularly siblings of individuals with intellectual disabilities, helping that non-disabled sibling to be able to recognize, look, this is really hard for them. This is something that their brain takes longer to process. And by encouraging that cognitive empathy, it can really help siblings learn to be more emotionally responsive. Mm-hmm. And not everybody needs that in the same way. We'll talk a lot about individual differences, um, but but again, the the understanding aspect of empathy.
0: Mm-hmm. No, that's it's really interesting because I think we've spoken about this um, before we started recording as well. When it comes to my relationship with my sister and the whole difference that sort of impacts the way that I try to figure out how to make things work so she's comfortable while also making sure that she's not missing out in enjoying her 20s enjoying her strive into adulthood so there's that huge idea of me like I want to understand her a whole lot more and I want to be able to see that um yes yeah, she can't do a lot of things but there's things that she can't she can do that she can that I can sort of, help her do in order to make it as comfy as she's able to enjoy going out or enjoy um, pushing her limit of how sensory friendly situations are or situations aren't. Um, an example of that that I've just really thought of in recent years is the there's an exhibit for the Van Gogh um, sort of interactive exhibit that we have in Melbourne so you get to the whole walls are covered when it comes to his paintings and sort of being moved and everything and um she's she's not able to do it she's not able to sort of be in a place where it feels enclosed where pictures are moving out of every sort of up the wazoo and everything sort of moving around so I went in for her and I took videos of everything so she could see it so she didn't miss out. She wasn't able to uh, not see it. She was pushed into still seeing it, but in a way that she felt comfortable in the place that she felt safe. And I definitely have learned so much when it comes to how to be more empathetic as an adult. As a teenager, I was very different um, when it comes to me feeling like, okay, we can't do family stuff we can't do a lot of things because one person can't do it so I was very it took me to being an adult to understand what she can and can't what she can and can't do but as a teenager I was like okay why can't we go to a theme park just because she can't it doesn't mean she has to go on the rides but she can just go and like sit down while while the rest of us go on a ride or I couldn't go with both my parents because one of them had to watch after my sister or stay back with her so it was always that um that idea of me feeling like I missed out in a lot of things as a teenager not being able to share experiences with her and also not being that close with her because I wasn't able to really sit down and understand so I know we'll talk about adolescence when it comes to that and situ- it comes to the relationship but I've only realized as an adult that there's so much that she can do, but we just need to figure out how she's able to do it. It is a very different thing. Yes, yeah.
1: And it's so hard for children and adolescents because they have that built-in egocentrism. It's natural, it is part of the developing brain that Mm -hmm. they see things from their perspective. So this idea of, but wait a minute, I want something and she wants something or I want something and she doesn't want something. Why do we always default to what she quote unquote doesn't want rather than mm-hmm. what I want? It's so hard. And you know, that's one of the big challenges for parents as well is how do we balance what may be a physical or cognitive need for one sibling and what is technically a want for another sibling? but ends up being a need to some degree in terms of responsiveness and attachment and and feeling equal in the family.
0: Mm -hmm. Especially when it comes to the idea of it feels like you're choosing one sibling over the other, feels like you're choosing my sister or my brother over me that you want to pick their side against my side. And yeah, that was always, I think a lot of me, resented her as a teenager because of the experiences that we weren't able to enjoy, the closeness that my friends had with their siblings at that time that I didn't have with my sibling. So, and I can really relate to, I think we're we're also talking about quite a lot before we started recording and I wish we were recording it because it was so fascinating to be able to sort of introduce these different ideas. But when it comes to the, 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 topic of feeling left out or feeling like we missed something. There's that whole lack of engagement as well that a lot of adolescents would feel throughout, whether it's the their adolescent with a dis- disability or whether they're adolescent with indirectly um, experiencing the disability. There's that whole idea of we're not feeling understood, especially when it comes to Teenagers And teenagers are already dealing with a lot, but that whole idea of added addition with a whole lot of other things that they're also having to deal with within the family is something that is, um, I think we don't speak about it in terms of disability or neurodivergent kind of disab- disability and all these other things that we're sort of dealing with today. The sibling relationship is such a big thing that we don't really act on until we're adults or until there's no relationship left to sort of repair.
1: Yes, yes. And and I'm so glad you brought up neurodivergence as a concept because especially when it comes to autistic individuals, but also people with ADHD, people with sensory integration conditions, we're finally learning or finally acknowledging as the academic community, wait, we don't actually know what these things are we know what they look like to non-disabled mm-hmm. people. The, in the United States, the entire diagnostic criteria for autism is difficulties in social relationships and social communication and restrictive and repetitive behaviors and interests. So mm-hmm. we think you're interacting with us weird and you keep doing the same thing over and over again. And again, it's a, doing the same thing over and over again in a way that's not societally accepted. Um, Mm -hmm. so we don't have any real measurement from an academic perspective of wait a minute how do autistic individuals perceive things how do their minds work how are they interacting with and interfacing with the world not only socially but genuinely how are they perceiving information What is the world like for them to experience? Now, autistic people have been trying to tell us this for decades and (laughs) academia has not listened. So (laughs) we're finally just, you know, academics and researchers at various places around the world are like, you know, we should learn more about this. So how does that get back to empathy and the sibling relationship? This idea of trying to encourage empathy and encourage this perspective taking in siblings It's almost extra difficult for neurodivergent people because we don't know their perspective. We know what their experience looks like to us, which is, Mm -hmm. oh, they are having a meltdown because there's sensory overload. Okay, but we actually don't know what that sensory overload feels like or how long it's been going on or what the specific combination of sensations is that causes that overload. So in that way, this empathy and perspective taking can be really difficult to model and to encourage because we don't know what that
0: perspective is. Yeah, no, that's very true. And I think we sort of, we lack a lot of information because a lot of the people who, like you said, autism, people with autism have been telling us for years that this is what we're going through this is what sensory overload is supposed it does feel like or this is what this is the changes that you have to make in society to sort of accommodate for sensory overload like in concerts for people who still don't want to feel like they're missing out in a concert but when you're kids a lot of parents still lack that information or lack that um support to be able to really acknowledge the fact that this is what they're dealing with, and this is the experience that they're having. So when it comes to the family experience and the family sort of relationships, how can we encourage empathy within adolescence and within that sibling relationship to make sure that they're both sort of feeling heard and they're both feeling seen? Yeah.
1: One of the best ways to teach anything to children and adolescents is to model it to really Mm -hmm. show, look, we are doing this. We are all doing this as a family. And you don't just model it toward the child, the sibling with the disability. You model it to everybody. Mm -hmm. Hey, I recognize that you had a really hard day today. How are you doing? How can I support you? Um, Oh, I recognize that what you heard from what I said Is really hurtful. And I'm so sorry, I did not mean to hurt you. You know, modeling that with everybody. Now, perhaps, especially for the child with a disability, for the sibling with a disability, the parents might need, especially early on, to be a little bit more vocal and demonstrative about that empathy. So, okay, okay, this is really hard for her. Oh, look, she really likes this. This is making her really happy. And and then maybe work on problem solving together. Okay, so she really likes this, but the sound that she's making is really interrupting your homework. What are some ways that we can problem solve this so that nobody is being hurt and everybody's getting what they need? And mm-hmm. finally, just acknowledging Yes, depending on the type of disability that your sibling has, they are going to need more. They are going to need more attention. They are going to need more of mom and dad's attention, more time, things like that. And then as children get older, we can maybe explain this is because society isn't set up for disabled people. We don't have systems that include people with disabilities the way we include non-disabled people. So because of all of those barriers and those challenges to full participation, your sibling needs a little more personal attention and time and effort from us. Mm -hmm. Not for young kids, though. Young kids still struggle to understand systems. Grown people struggle to understand systems. Who am I kidding?
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's there's no comparison when it comes to that. But I think especially when it's sort of dealing with, um, I think we were talking about the extent of the disability as well, The some th- disabilities who are nonverbal as well, who aren't able to sort of express how they're feeling in a, in a typical sense, whereas like they sort of say, this is how I'm feeling. They're sort of having to exert how they're feeling in a different way or um, express a little bit more vibrantly instance. So when it comes to those relationships, I I've had a family member who is or who is autistic, who is nonverbal, who is not um, not as attentive as their other sibling, for example. And they usually have to end up forcing them together in the same room in order to sort of help that, which did strain their relationship as an adult when it made both of them resent each other, would have made one sibling resent that sibling to the extent where they don't really want to be able to stay in the same room because it's inconvenient or because it's so when it comes to that, I think going back to empathy as well, sometimes forced empathy is not something that we we can we can't force a child, force a teenager to sort of understand. So how would you sort of try to do it in a way that's not that's not also feeling like that is forcing a friendship or forcing some kind of relationship to happen. Yes.
1: Oh, my goodness. As you were telling that story, I was like, no, don't force. Don't force them in a room <laughs> together. That's a terrible idea. Not that, of course, they had the best intentions. Um, and in those cases, you, you try to do things as a family as much as possible, even if that's eating dinner in the same room. Because you know, for some people with disabilities, eating at the table might not be possible every day. Maybe depending on the temperature of the food or just what kind of feeling they're having or what their body is doing, they need to sit in a soft chair over in the corner, okay? Mm -hmm. But they are still part of the family. They are still together. Um, And then as you are encouraging those activities. Again, never forcing to the extent that it's possible. And I know for so many families, you don't have the option to not force people to be together because you can't, as you described with your sister, necessarily have one parent go off with one sibling and one parent go off with another. Like, no, we do have (laughs) to do things together. There's only one parent, or there's more than two siblings, or whatever it is. So you, you work on these activities. And again, you model the equality and the reciprocity. So for everything that you're maybe trying to communicate to the non-disabled sibling, like, oh, look how happy he is, he really seems to enjoy that. You're also communicating to the disabled sibling saying, oh my gosh, your brother did so great at his basketball game today, aren't you proud of him? So that you're really sharing that this is a bi-directional relationship and you recognize that. And we know that people have different relationships. What we want for siblings is a lack of animosity. We want respect. We would love to have affection and love and, you know, all of those close, warm, caring sibling feelings. And that's not necessarily gonna happen for every sibling pair, and especially not at every stage in their life. So by just encouraging this sort of basis of respect, and again, understanding, then that's going to likely, for siblings who don't naturally or more naturally gravitate toward each other, the encouragement of understanding is going to protect the relationship long-term. And we talked about, you know, teenagers and forcing teenagers. And that's not good. It's not good for the disabled sibling either. Maybe they don't yeah. want to be around their sibling. Maybe the maybe something about the body wash that their sibling uses is really hard for them, a really hard smell for them to be around and they don't like it. Or maybe they're just mad at them that day and they don't want to be forced around them. So forcing you know, any one can be really challenging. Now, that can get really tough in cases where you have one sibling who clearly wants to be with the other one more. Um, this often mm-hmm. happens maybe with younger siblings wanting to be around their older sibling, thinking their older sibling is so cool. And in that case, you you still want to keep encouraging the balance. Like, yes, I understand, you know, for the older sibling, for example, Maybe you don't want to be around them right now. And he's so happy. He loves you so much. What can we plan later to to be together? And just continually being aware of who is maybe being hurt in each situation and how are they being hurt? Mm
0: -hmm. And we've spoken quite a bit on empathy and as being sort of a positive Um, outcome, potential positive outcome that can sort of come out when going through um, having a disability with a family member and things like that. But what other potential positive outcomes can sort of emerge for adolescent siblings growing up in families with disabled members?
1: Yes. This is one of my favorite questions to ask siblings themselves. And sometimes, Mm. particularly in adolescence, siblings will say, nothing. I don't know that there's any benefit. And then at other times, siblings will say, look, I've learned a lot of patience. I have learned not to judge people. These are all good things. I had one sibling and it was the greatest thing. I said, what's the best thing about having a brother with Down syndrome? And he said, getting in the front of the line at Disney World. Yes. Yes, sir. I agree with you. That's a huge benefit. Good for you. Uh, But in terms of, you know, sort of life lessons that they learn, this learning to understand and perhaps have more of a respect for the breadth of human experience is something that I think all of us could benefit from. Like, oh yeah, people are different. Some people do struggle with things that I don't struggle with and they are just as worthy and just as valid of human beings. So that's something that, that siblings can learn.
0: So a lot of emotional intelligence can be, is a potential result and sort of- Potential, yes. Yeah, depending on how far we go with it, whether it's forced or whether it comes naturally. Um, so what are some of your strategies that parents can sort of use on a day-to-day basis to provide that emotional support to adolescents, adolescent siblings and families with disabled members?
1: Yes, so one of the first steps in sort of any adolescent parent relationship is figuring out how they like to communicate. What is their style of communication? Mm -hmm. So for some people, it might not be face-to-face. Like, okay, this is really hard for me to say. This is really embarrassing, whatever it may be. I want to write it down. I want to text Mm -hmm. you. Maybe we text each other from different rooms. Maybe we text each other in the same room. For others, maybe they really need that proximity they they like you know resting their head on on mom or dad's shoulder they like hugs things like that so finding what that preferred style of communication is is really going to help you then have these more difficult conversations to be able to sit down or text each other from different rooms and say you know how you treated your sister today is not okay Let's talk about what led to you doing that. And mm-hmm. then hopefully you can learn and again, get the perspective, modeling the perspective taking with the parent and the non-disabled sibling and and trying to understand and problem solve and find ways to not be in those situations in the future. Now, mm-hmm. I said that all in like 30 seconds, like it's really easy to do. It's not. This mm-hmm. takes so much time and and so much practice, and the parents are going to get frustrated, and the kids are going to get frustrated, both disabled and non-disabled siblings, and that's okay. That's going to happen. And figuring out communication and trying to recognize and address things before they get out of hand, which again, once you start to recognize communication and practice empathy, the benefits is that you can start recognizing maybe some of the warning signs in everybody, like, oh, you seem to be getting to a place rather than you're already off the charts with mm-hmm. anger or fr- frustration. So, trying to, as parents, model empathy, but model empathy in a way that your goal really is understanding. You want to try to understand so that you can work with everyone's perspective and acknowledge that it's just not going to work sometimes. People are Mm going to have bad days. Again, maybe for a length of time, a few months, a few years, your children are not going to be that close to each other as siblings. And that's okay. I have eight brothers and sisters. And my sort of level of closeness with each of them is different at any given time. You know, sometimes I'm just really deep in conversation with one sibling and turn around and realize that I haven't talked to another sibling in a few weeks. Other times, you know, I'll be with a sibling in person and be like, yeah, this is great. Why don't we do this more often? Well, because we live in different states and we're all adults and so yeah. if these these relationships are going to change and they're going to look different from time to time.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think when it comes to I mean, going back to that whole idea, the whole conversation we're having about forced relationships and compared to having it letting having it naturally, there's that huge difference as like from my relationship with my sister as growing up compared to what we have now, where we're where I'm probably emotionally attached to her a little bit more now than than I was as a teenager, where I'm the first person that I want to s- tell when I something good happens, or when I'm going through something, she's the first person that I want there and I want to tell her. But as a teenager, there's that whole idea of, like you said, that the whole idea of the egoistic side that sort of naturally comes up, where we're just so focused on what we want. We're so focused on how we sort of go through things rather than thinking about how they're also going through things. But when going through with relationships later on, I've learned to take my time with it. And I've learned to, okay, we're not always going to get along, but doesn't mean that we're always going to fight. Yes, exactly. So there's that difference that we have now. Yes.
1: And there may be times in the future as your individual lives develop, That you have less time and energy to devote to your sister because you're going to be devoting it to your kids or you know your spouse or someone else and that's okay too so maybe you won't physically have the time to go into the van gogh visit exhibit and take videos for her but that doesn't mean that you care less it doesn't mean that you know your whole relationship has blown up and it's never going to be the same It's just, look, this is the stage of life that we're in right now, and things are gonna be uh, a little more difficult. Mm -hmm.
0: So going into how parents can sort of be a part of the joining two siblings together and sort of helping that relationship, how can they promote a healthy sibling relationship between the disabled child and the adolescent sibling? Yeah.
1: So that's such an interesting question because it's going to look different for every pair of siblings. Mm-hmm. We were talking a little bit earlier, again, about this idea of type of disability, uh, potential level of needs for a given sibling. So if a a child has cerebral palsy and communicates non-verbally and uses a wheelchair and just needs a lot of sort of physical support. The relationship between that sibling and a non disabled sibling is going to look very different than the relationship of a non disabled sibling and a sibling with Down syndrome, who does communicate verbally and does move around and, you know, maybe just processes things a little more slowly cognitively and maybe has slightly less flexibility. Although I say that and my mom's brother is incredibly flexible. He'll bring his legs up and just cross them. He likes to sit like that. So that was consciousness. Um, So (laughs) less flexible wasn't a good example necessarily. Um, And then that's going to look different, like you said, from a non-disabled sibling and a sibling with perhaps a psychiatric disability or who is otherwise neurodivergent, maybe autistic but without an intellectual disability or who has ADHD because then there can be the idea of but wait a minute you do understand you are able to speak so why is this thing happening now why don't you understand x y and z when you're so good at a b and c Mm -hmm. so with how parents encourage things it's going to look different so if we start with perhaps the example of a sibling with a disability that has a lot of support needs that society deems extreme. And I always try to say it this way because we all have needs. We all have needs. Something goes wrong in my house and I've got my stepdad on the phone because I don't know how to fix it. Uh, that mm-hmm. is a need of mine. So why these? this idea of if someone needs help bathing or dressing, that's somehow a special need or an extensive need? Like, why? Who says um, uh, so anyway, this um this hypothetical sibling with a lot of personal care needs, in that case, it's going to look less egalitarian. And that's actually a phrase from a research paper um, that some some wonderful researchers, I think at University of Wisconsin did ages ago, which basically means there's there's less equal levels of give and take. It's going to be maybe a lot more giving from the non-disabled sibling and less less functionally equal reciprocity, okay? Mm-hmm. That sibling, the the sibling with a disability is unlikely to hold job hold a job. Not impossible, but people with disabilities have the highest rates of unemployment. Society does not like to give disabled people jobs. So maybe they're not paying for things. If they communicate non-verbally, maybe they're not giving advice or things like that, but maybe they give really good hugs. Maybe they are great listeners because they don't interrupt and they, they are really good at demonstrating their own empathy and, and you know, ability to listen to their sibling. So what parents can do to support that is recognize the difference and work with both siblings in this dyad to try to discover what do we want? What does each of us enjoy separately and together? And how much do, do we want to be together? Um, a lot of cases there might be shared activities. So for my uncle, who does not have a mobility disability? He's he's able to walk, uh, albeit slowly, as he gets a little older. My aunt took him go kart racing the other day. So oh, wow, those go karts! And a- as my uncle sent around the videos, we're all like, "Why did we not think of this before? This is a great <laughs> idea." So it you know finding activities like that. Now, for the, the sort of next hypothetical dyad of a sibling who does communicate verbally or perhaps partially verbally and has an intellectual disability, there's again, there's going to be that realization, helping siblings reach that realization that, okay, maybe we want different things. And especially for the non-disabled sibling, helping them realize like, look, she may not always understand that you maybe don't want to be with her right now or maybe can't be with her right now. That's something that her brain has a harder time processing. So encouraging patience and as parents, helping set and enforce those boundaries. So we talked about not forcing relationships, but helping Mm -hmm. to maintain the sibling's boundaries is going to be really important because then the sibling, the non-disabled sibling, doesn't always have to be the bad guy in saying no you can't be in here right now go away because that's also not helpful for the sibling relationship now for this last hypothetical pairing we're looking at siblings two siblings neither of whom have an intellectual disability but one of whom has some variation of neurodivergence be that a psychiatric disability adhd autism something like that and for that pairing we're really working on as parents encouraging that perspective taking like what does this look like and sometimes Mm -hmm. that might literally look like practice for both siblings okay what does this look like we're going to stop we're going to think through how to communicate in a way that is not hurtful how can we demonstrate our respect and our care and our love and helping them work on those relationships again not force and with this foundation of well understood communication but again a little more of the overt sort of guiding through what do we bo- what do you both want in this relationship and how can we as parents support that Mm-hmm. And all of these can work with any potential siblings. It's every family's unique, of course, and different things are gonna work for different people.
0: Yeah, I think the thing that like I'm sort of realizing as as you were talking is the fact that whether you're disabled or no, there's still that's still always gonna be the case when it comes to two siblings in different ages who aren't sort of um, in similar age groups, there's always going to be that kind of conflict. There's always going to be, oh, you're picking a side you're picking. So it's not really the, the sibling relationship that's, that we're just sort of dealing with when it comes to disabilities. It's pretty much just how we're sort of inter interacting between the two of them, whether it's like you're forcing a relationship between two neurotypical children and two siblings who are just trying to not hang out with each other or one trying to hang out so this relationship doesn't really affect disabled or not disabled it's sort of this I think the extent as to the amount of care that's needed and the amount of um, empathy that's needed the amount of knowledge that's needed between both the siblings as to how best to go through so when you were talking I was like this is pretty much seems like a normal sibling relationship drama that sort of always comes in when it comes to two siblings trying to understand each other.
1: Yeah, it definitely can be. And as we were talking about before we were recording, the extra ingredient in relationships with a sibling with a disability is ableism. So we are all raised in profoundly ableist societies, like everything about our society's rewards the smartest, the fastest, the strongest, which then, not even really implicitly, it's fairly explicit, says like, look, those who are slower or less intelligent or weaker, that's bad. We don't we don't want that. The example mm-hmm. I like to give to my students is, I don't know if this is as common outside the United States, but in the United States, if a person is pregnant and somebody knows that they're pregnant, they might ask like, oh, do you know what the gender is going to be, if it's going to be a boy or a girl? For one of the most common answers is people saying, I don't care as long as they're healthy. Like that idea Mm -hmm. of quote unquote health is seen as the baseline of acceptability for humanity. And- Mm -hmm for most of us, we are taught to see disability as the opposite of health, which it is not. That is built into ableism. So when non-disabled siblings have a sibling with a disability, they are still getting all of these messages from society that being disabled is bad. We do not want to be disabled. So therefore, disabled people are to be pitied or are to be shunned just Mm -hmm. any number of not included outcomes. Mm -hmm. So yes, you want to encourage these things, these close relationships and this perspective taking as a parent. And first of all, the parents have to recognize their own ableism and their own exposure to ableism. And you then sort of have to challenge these messages that the siblings and the rest of the family are getting. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: I guess it really comes into play when it when you're sort of talking about, um, oh, I feel bad or I'm I feel bad. Are you Is everything? Okay. The amount of support that's needed is always is you're not going to get that when it comes to a fully ableist family, but when you are when it's family with, with a sibling with a disability, they're always going to be people a lot more empathetic. It's not like a normalized conversation it's not like a normalized situation enough for it to be um it's always like uh, people come across and saying oh how are you going with that how are you dealing with that rather than and it's the amount of the lingo that we use the words the vocabulary that we use really set the tone for how the that family member with this with the disability um, is gonna feel, and also yes. sets how everyone else is supposed to feel. Like, how's the adolescent sibling supposed to? Oh, am I supposed to be pitied? Am I supposed to be? Um, are the people supposed to am be I sorry to for be me?
1: Praised? Like, exactly. oh my gosh, you're such a saint for for doing what you're doing.
0: Well, exactly. No.
1: Like, she's she's my sister. Are you yeah. a saint for for being a sister? Maybe I don't know. <laughs> Yeah,
0: no, exactly. And that's pretty much how society sets up the adolescent sibling to be able to think the fact that they're supposed to be, they're amazing for this to even happen to them or Mm -hmm. they're, um, this is so not normal. This is not something that you typically deal with.
1: (laughs) Yes, it's so not normal and therefore it must be so hard. So even if they're getting the message that, oh, they're amazing for doing it, that comes with the message that you're amazing because this is so hard. And people are gonna internalize that, this idea Mm -hmm. that like, wow, my sibling is really hard to be related to. Like, that, that may or may not be true, and it may or may not have anything to do with their disability.
0: Yeah, no, that's true. And I think when it comes to society, I think we definitely need to think about the, and what I've learned from doing this show is how much vocabulary plays a part in relationships, in any kind of relationship, whether it's family or um, or not, or friendly relationships or romantic relationships. The lingo that we use, the words that we sort of describe it as, has a huge impact as to how we're, we think we're supposed to deal with it.
1: Yes, we are learning these lessons even as we're not aware that we're being taught these lessons.
0: Exactly. We're set to think that this is a situation that we're supposed to really second guess or really question rather than just sort of like, okay, this is a normal thing, a normal everyday thing. So yeah, I could not imagine um, being the adolescent sibling today with the kind of lingo that we're using and the amount of lack of support that both sides of the family are all getting when it comes to uh, just how we're supposed to feel and ha- telling, being told how we're supposed to do- be dealing with it. So no, it's... um. I definitely do appreciate all the different types, all the different things that I'm learning when it comes to the show, when it comes to the vocabulary and how important it is. So so we're going to go and talk about some of your own practices that you do in your own family relationships in, when it comes to the mother support. So what is a practice that you do to support your siblings, either with disability or with not disability? Yeah. So one of the things that I have to constantly
1: remind myself, because I'm not naturally good at this with with any of my siblings, is now that we're adults, reminding myself that they have their own lives and they make their own choices and, and that's okay. And that's not my responsibility. So for siblings of individuals with disabilities, that can be particularly if your maybe your sibling has an intellectual disability that can be something as small as let them pick out their own outfit like this is they are an adult they can make that choice now we're not going to get into the the whole issue of supported decision making and how especially in the United States adults with intellectual disabilities often do not have the capability to make any of their own life choices whether or not or I'm sorry are not granted the opportunity or the legal right to make their own decisions, even if they have the capability. So it's not that they don't have the capability. So in my practice, it's acknowledging, yes, my siblings are full human beings. They are people. They have their own opinions and lives and choices. And they—that that is not for me to fix is the word that comes to mind because that's how I think of it. I'm like, no, I have to fix it. Oh my gosh. If my siblings listen to this, they're being like, yeah, yeah. You, you practice that Carolyn. Do you, is that a thing that you do? I promise. I acknowledge that it's
0: something I need to work on. Okay. So when it comes to that as well, what are some of the challenges that you feel that you experience when, when trying to allow them to be their own human being. Yeah. And again, I think this this can apply
1: to siblings of individuals with disabilities. So you want them to be happy. You want them to have their absolute best lives. You want them to get everything they deserve. And sometimes they don't get that. And sometimes it can seem like they're not getting that because of the choices that they're making, and mm-hmm. I'm not the one that gets to decide what's best for them or what is their best life. So again, thinking of siblings of individuals with disabilities, maybe they really want a job. So even if you think like, no, there's nothing. This isn't something they can handle. It's it's too fast paced. People are going to be mean to them. Well. Maybe they want it and maybe they should have, no, not maybe, they should have the right to try it and they are grown adults and you don't make decisions for them. Mm-hmm.
0: No, I think I'm very much experiencing the same thing when it comes to her, my sister's own autonomy and trying to understand that she is her own person, that she is growing up to be her own adult, that she her decisions are her decisions and I don't have... I can't also protect her from everything as much as I would like to. I can't always be there to sort of tell her, you know, maybe that situation is not the best for you to go. Maybe you shouldn't take the train. I can drive you. If you want me to drive you, I can drive you to the restaurant that you're meeting your friends at. You don't have to take public transport. But there's that idea that okay, she needs to figure out if she's going to be late on to the train, she's going to be late to the train if she's going to not be able to go because she has, she's overstimulated at the moment, then she can't go. I'm not going to go and say, you know, you should go. I'll, I'll drop you there. So, and I'm still, I'm still going through that. I, I live with her. So I see her all the time. So I'm always like, do you want me to drop you? <laughs> so that's always that I, that um understanding that I just need to let her be her own person. And it's always the hardest It is probably always the hardest when you're watching them and being like, I want to be there for you. But at the same time, you have to fall on your own and figure out how to get back up.
1: (laughs) Yes, yes. And, you know, it's, it's good for people. And we know that for kids, right? We know it's good for kids to face adversity and to problem solve and to learn how to cope with things being difficult. And... I I think in some ways it can be just as hard to watch adults and be like, okay, you're going to learn and you might be really sad and really miserable and really struggle. And that's okay. That is part of humanity. And, you know, ultimately we're not helping them and we're probably not even being nice to them and they probably don't even appreciate it most of the time or don't not appreciate (laughs) them even want it like it's again it's this forcing that we've been talking about like the idea of we are forcing our ideas of what their life should be and what decisions they should make onto them
0: Mm -hmm. no exactly and how do you think that this practice and sort of trying just to let them be and trying to let them have their own autonomy. How do you think that that has impacted your own perception in your parenting as, or even in your life? Yeah, so I, it it very much
1: still is a practice. And what I try to do is really empathy, but it's it's empathy that's based in myself in recognizing like, okay, look, this is the, the grace that I would like from people. This is the respect. And I actually do think I have a pretty good understanding of my limits and what I can and can't handle. Not always, <clears throat> you know, we, we always make choices that aren't right sometimes. So <clears throat> because I know how much I want everybody else to respect those opinions, to acknowledge that I know myself better than they know me, then I really have to provide that to them. Like they mm-hmm. know themselves better than I know them. Even though I have a PhD
0: in psychology. <laughs> you can throw that in once in a while, be like, I know what I'm talking just, about. <laughs> I am a doctor, you guys. Like, I'm just <laughs> saying <laughs> This leads in perfectly well with our last section of the show, which is our open mic. Honestly, I think it's one of my favorite parts of the show because its I never know what we're going to end up talking about until this very moment. So in the last couple of minutes, I'd love to get to know some of your, a topic that you have in mind for our little discussion today or something that you want to share with our audience.
1: Yes. So we kind of touched on this, but I really do want to talk more about ableism and this is uh, this is so nerdy because it is my current research. So I've done all this research on siblings of individuals with disabilities and worked with families of disabled individuals. And throughout virtually all of our history of research on disabled individuals, their families, et cetera, all of our measures are based on the disabled person what are their quote unquote symptoms? How quote unquote severe is their disability? We don't ask, how's the rest of the world treating you? Like for a deaf person, do we have captioning readily available? Do we have sign language interpreters? Are there people in your community who understand sign language and can communicate with you? So, The study that I'm actually currently doing is trying to develop a quantitative measure of experienced ableism so that when we do these studies of, you know, oh, people with disabilities have lower levels of quality of life and well-being and whatever story we're trying to sell, Mm -hmm. when we're looking at those outcomes, we can say like, okay, but this is what society does. Like, I understand there are some individual traits, everybody's got individual traits, but this is how they are treated. This is how many barriers they face that don't have to be barriers, okay? Mm -hmm. We can make captioning available. We can have ramps and elevators. So, especially when it comes to families, one of my ultimate goals is to be able to then translate and modify this measure as necessary for family members, because family members Experience or can experience sort of tangential ableism. Like, okay, mm-hmm. we're gonna, we're gonna go out to a restaurant. We're so excited. Oh, their lift is broken. We can't get in because mm-hmm. we have a family member who's a wheelchair user. So that's again, this sort of tangential or parallel ableism, parallel is not the right word, that the family members are experiencing. How much can you not do? How many options are taken away from you because of Mm -hmm. the ableism of society? And ableism is not going to solve everything. If we eradicate ableism, it's not going to solve everything. There are still going to be people with conditions that cause them physical pain, things like that. And like, my goodness, if disabled people had even twice as many 10 times as many options as they currently do that still wouldn't be as many options as non-disabled people have for anything they do and choose in their daily life but wow what a difference that would make
0: mm-hmm. no that's very true i i one of my favorite additions to um that i've recently just seen is the addition of a sensory sensory room in concerts where People who can't, not just children, but adults who can't even handle the the large amount of people that are in a concert, they can go in that room and they can sort of just recapture themselves for a little bit or recollect, sorry, recollect themselves for a little bit and be able to still enjoy an experience that is, I mean, if you think about it, it is set up for a lot of an ableist perspective when it comes to a general concert so the new additions that they're sort of making it where they're making it more appropriate for all different types of people is such a big thing that we're now, I think it's sad that we're now dealing with it, but I'm glad that we're also recognizing the, the amount of assistance, the amount of changes that need to be made in order for the rest of the world to be able to feel like they can enjoy something that's not just for a certain group of people. Yeah.
1: And to help non-disabled people recognize the existence of disabled people. Like it's this vicious cycle of our, our society's not built for disabled people. So we don't see disabled people in society. So then we think, oh, there's just not that many disabled people. They just, we don't need to make these adjustments. So we continue to create worlds and societies that are ableist. So when we intentionally make these spaces and make these options for disabled people, then we are by proxy demonstrating to the rest of the
0: world, that disabled people exist. Mm -hmm. No, that's very true. And that's such a great way for us to, a last little statement for us to wrap up the show and the last little thing for us to really take away when it comes to how we sort of see our own perspective and see our own sort of empathy when it comes to the rest of the world and how even family members as well going through the similar situations that we spoke about. I'm glad that we're, sort of talking about their experiences as well and both, all, all, all ends of the area, whether it's being the parent or the child with the indirect empathy to disability or the child with disability themselves. There's such a, there's so many different perspectives that we've spoken about today. So it's I'm so glad that we got to sort of introduce all of them and acknowledge all of them as well. So thank you so much, Carolyn, for joining me on the show of today and for talking about this because it's something that I'm really glad we finally got to speak about on a show that is built on family and built on and speaking about family. So I'm um, thank you so much for joining me. If there is a way if there's a way that audience members would like to get in touch with you to even speak about something, their own experiences or something that I may not have mentioned, is there a contact information that I can give out to our audience today? Yes, absolutely. So my academic email
1: address is cshivers at niagara.edu. So it's n i a. G-A-R-A. There's an extra syllable in there that doesn't get said. Um, And if you search, uh, if you if you Google Carolyn Scheiber's Niagara, my contact information should come up um, fairly soon. Uh, Some of my some of my papers and stuff are on there. I don't don't think my contact information would be too far down. I don't know the Google algorithm. Um, So, yes, I am always happy to hear family stories and to try to offer ideas and strategies that people can try and, and yeah, hear what strategies they have that have worked
0: really well, that then I can share with other people and have them try. Oh, perfect. I'll definitely have the link down below for easy access for all our audience, just cause it's something that does need to be promoted a whole lot more. So thank you guys so much for listening. I'll see you all in the next episode. You've been listening to All Together, the Family Science Insights Podcast produced by the Family Science Labs, a division of LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. More episodes are available from 10 life management perspectives and can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcasting apps available on your devices. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it, and subscribing to our channel, as it helps other people find it so that we can grow and bring you more quality resources. More of our work can be found on our website at fa.lmsl.net where you can join our movement. I'm Dina Sargent. Thanks for tuning in.